I've never run a marathon, but I've hit the wall before. So uh, when my son was in college, he got this crazy idea that he wanted to ride his bike home from college, which is kind of cool. He goes to UC Santa Cruz. I went to UC Santa Cruz. And so he invited his friends, people like Kevin Dean and Brady Bollinger, Johnny Wood, and, and, uh, and Nathan Allen, and, and said, hey, let's ride our bikes home from, from college, from Santa Cruz. And then Connor, my son, called me up and said, and we want you to go with us, too. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like five days from Santa Cruz home, it's, it's a haul. And there are three days of 100 miles, you know, back to back. And I hit the wall, you know. The lesson that we learn is the way to keep from hitting the wall is what you do before, before you ever get there. You know, you got to hydrate, you got to keep taking fluids in, and you got to keep eating, getting energy inside of you. And I did all that. Why did I hit the wall? Because I was twice their age. I was just an old guy, you know, trying to struggle behind them. But we're in this series, Joshua, moving forward with God. And this morning, we want to look at that famous story about Joshua and Jericho. And uh, we want to discover what do we do when we face battles in front of us? What do we do when we have a wall that is keeping us from getting to the place where we know God is calling us uh, to get there? And you remember the context, and James really set it up last week, okay? So Moses has handed the baton of leadership off to Joshua, the next generation. And they've come out of the wilderness, they've crossed the Jordan River, and then they had these weird experiences where the next generation, all the guys had to be circumcised. They celebrated Passover for the first time in decades. And then they ate some of the food in the promised land. And the manna that God had provided for 40 years, it instantaneously stopped. So they're, they're ready to go. Like, let's, let's go. Let's take the city. Let's get into the promised land. You know, while I was thinking about this, I, I, I thought of the River Church. You know, we're moving into our second decade. And I started thinking about the families that started the river. And it's not that they're old and dead like the, uh, you know, people that were in the wilderness. You know, that first generation died off. And now it was a new generation coming up. And I thought about all the young people in the river, the young couples and all these kids. And I thought about the reality that, you know, this is your time. And sometimes with a church like the river, we can think about the glory days when there were a few really beautiful families who met in backyards and just made this thing happen. And they, you all paid a price for 10 years, you know. But in one sense, the best days of the river, I believe, are still in the future. And they're the days that are going to be sort of made happen by a lot of the young people that are part of the river. And, and that, makes me, that makes me excited. So let's look at the story, and um, we'll, 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 we'll see these, what I want to call, three strategic moves before you hit the wall. Joshua chapter 5, we'll start at verse 13, the very end of the chapter, and then we'll just read to verse 5 of chapter 6. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, I think it was a reconnaissance mission to find out 
What is the wall? What does the city look like? What are we up against? He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? This guy says, Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come, period. It's like almost a bizarre statement. Are you for us or or, or against us? And he said, no. (laughs) Okay. What did Joshua do? Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what is the message that my Lord has for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. So Joshua did so. And this is one of those situations where chapter divisions don't really work. Because the story just keeps on going. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out. No one came in. The conversation keeps going between now it's the, we discover it's the Lord. He said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Here's the plan. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. I think the first move that I see as I've been thinking about and praying about this text is this. You got to fight the battle before the battle. You, you, you got a you wall in front of you. You got, a, you got a big challenge. You got a battle that you're confronting. And what this story is telling us, there's a battle before the battle. And in many ways, it's more important than what appears to be the real battle. So Joshua is near Jericho. And Jericho sits in a valley. This nation has come out of the wilderness... Now they're going to move into this valley, and this valley leads into the promised land that God said, you're going to go in, you're going to take it, it's your inheritance. But Jericho sits as a city, a walled city, right at the mouth of that valley. Joshua's out looking, you know, we got to go through that city to get to the promised land. And he discovers, as he meets this fellow, This commander of the Lord's army with a sword, how do you say that? Sword, sword out, ready for battle. So the question is not, are you for me or for our enemies? No, he says, no, 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 neither. I want to know, are you for me? The captain doesn't fit into any of Joshua's preconceived categories. Like, what does this mean? I don't understand the guy with the sword. And that's part of the reality of fighting battles, 
is that God will never be co-opted by our agenda. This isn't about, God, will you bless my plans? So, good advice. Before any battle, go face down and take your shoes off. You know, posture is strangely important here in terms of what it indicates or signifies about our sort of attitude or relationship to God. And his shoes. Take your shoes off. Face down, take your shoes off. This is like a, this is, this is Joshua's Moses at the burning bush experience where Moses is talking to a bush that's on fire and won't go out. And then God speaks from the bush and says, hey, buddy, take your shoes off. Why? Because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Shoes symbolize power, dignity, ownership. And the commander says, take your shoes off. I'm in charge here. Humility, humbleness. There's a battle to be fought before the real battle. There's preparation before the Patriots and the Falcons lace up their shoes. There's a lot of preparation that happens. And maybe the preparation is the most important part of the whole game. That which we never see. First Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. You know, the reality is, is all ground is holy. It's the thing about the river, too. You know, we don't have a typical church, you know, with a building, with a steeple and a cross, you know, and then all of God's people inside. We don't have that. We, we go to the beach. It's just common sand of everyday life. We come into the Norris Pavilion. This is just a, this is a beautiful place that the community comes and lives life in. That's a great message for the river because sometimes we get this idea that when we go inside a church that we've somehow entered into a territory that's more holy or sacred. Now, now that doesn't mean that when our students go up to Forest Home, that they're not going to a sacred place where saints in years past have gone there. Billy Graham, on his knees, understood God's call to him to take the gospel to the nations. It's a holy, sacred place. But this story is telling us that all ground is sacred ground. Wherever you go, when you're at school, when you're in the cubicle, or when you go to that scary place that you're anxious and you're fearful the psalmist said in 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jericho belonged to God before Joshua and his army ever came up to the wall. There was a battle before the battle. And my friend Jim Creaseman and his wife Kimberly are right here. And they've been missionaries for years. We served on staff together, but missionaries for years in Singapore and and uh, just bringing the gospel, but, but primarily training pastors and training leaders. And Jim goes uh, three, four, five times a year now to Vietnam. And he asked me if I would be willing to go on one of his trips. So next Sunday, we're going to go to Vietnam together. And uh, yeah, and we, we, had, we, uh, we invited Bill and Anita Sayers to go with us. So the, the five of us, no, that's four of us. Yeah, 
Well, the fifth. You know, the fifth is the army of the Lord's, uh, the commander, the commander of the Lord's army, right? Um, we're going to Vietnam. And, you know, uh, the, the neat thing is, is that part of our time there is going to be to go and train about 40 young Vietnamese um, youth workers in how to do youth ministry. So that's a great opportunity. I'm, I'm so thrilled, Jim. Thank you for the invitation. And, and we're going we're gonna to pray. You're, you're going to pray for us next Sunday. So I hope you'll come and send us off. But, but here's the deal. You know, um, we're, we're the Americans. We're the Westerners. We're the ones that have a lot of education and a lot of experience in church work. And, and in Vietnam, they're just really beginning, you know, to do youth ministry. So will you come, please, and teach us how to do youth ministry? Well, the first thing is on our face with our shoes off. Of course, I guess we'll take our shoes off a lot there, right? Yeah. But, but here's the deal is that God is already at work in Vietnam doing a great work. And we could make the mistake of thinking that we're going to, to, to bring something, but really we're going to experience and see what God is doing and then encourage. Part of the battle before the battle is understanding that God is so big and so in charge and owns the whole world. He's claimed it as his own. And wherever we go, he is already there and at work. We get to just participate in what is happening. So Joshua chose to fight the battle before the battle because he knew that private victories precede public victories. What happens in private often determines what happens in public. We need to get right with God before we fight for God. But there's a second step, I think. The first verses of chapter 6. We need to trust the warrior behind the warrior. In verse 1, the gates are securely barred. It's a hopeless situation for Israel. Look at those walls. Look at those gates. How are we ever going to accomplish this mission? I think that when the spies in chapter 2 snuck into Jericho to kind of scout things out to see what was happening, and remember, they got into the city and then they went up and they hid in Rahab, the prostitute's home. I think part of their mission was to go and test out the sort of spiritual temperature in this city. To find out what was actually going on there. And when you get to verse 1 of chapter 6, what we discover is they have said, we don't want anything to do with your God. Gates are shut. Hearts are closed. Hardened to any message that you might bring to us. And all the spies could do is hide with Rahab and then get out of town. But we see the Lord says to Joshua, verse 2, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and all of its fighting men. This is God's battle to fight. It's not Joshua's battle. Elvis actually had it wrong. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. No, the Lord fought the battle. It's the same as the story that we read about when young David, soon to be king, but just a 
a, a young person comes up against the giant, the Philistine, Goliath. And David tries to put on Saul's armor and says, this doesn't fit me. He takes those small, smooth stones and he goes out to fight the battle against Goliath. From all vantage point of anyone else, he's sure to lose this battle. But David is confident because because he knows about the warrior behind the warrior. He knows that it's not his battle to fight. In fact, in that story, he says this. He says to, to Goliath and all the Philistines arrayed so all the Israel can hear it. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. There's a certain amount of spiritual confidence when we put our trust in the warrior behind the warrior. Picture Jesus with a drawn sword. You know, we often don't put him in that category, but Jesus as the mighty warrior. And when he was in the garden, remember? It was the, the night that he was betrayed. It was after he'd washed his disciples' feet and he'd, he'd celebrated the Passover with them, bringing to mind what these Israelites had just celebrated in the crossing of the Jordan. He took the bread and broke it in the cup. He broke it, and then he went out to the garden with his disciples and said, pray with me. This is, this is the night. And then in the darkness, there's this crowd of, of, of hoodlums, you know, that come into the garden looking for Jesus. And it says that they had clubs and spears in their hands. And they want to grab Jesus. And Jesus, I, I think even inside, though, there was great anticipation, even anxiety, Jesus probably has a bit of a smirk on his face. He says to them, when they want to arrest him, the clubs, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? You know how big a legion is? That's 6,000 warriors times 12. Jesus says, I could just look to my father and like that, he would immediately put at my disposal more than 72,000 fighting warriors for me. But you know that Jesus had fought the battle behind the battle. And he was putting his trust in the warrior behind the warrior. And he didn't call for those angels. He went to the cross instead. But sometimes we just can't see that. You see verse six, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 2? The Lord says, See? Do you not see? Our vision can easily get clouded because of our fear, because of the wall in front of us, the battle that we have to go into, the obstacles in our way, the, the, the enemies that are after us. We can become afraid. And God says, see, open your eyes. Do we have eyes to see the warrior behind the warrior? You know, we have no idea what is arrayed 
in the spiritual world that is not way far away. No, my friends, the spiritual world where the battles are fought is right here in this room. God's army is all around you, present and ready. And it makes me think, when you open the Chronicles of Narnia, and Lucy goes into the wardrobe, what does she see? Yes, clothes, but then she sees a forest, and snow, and a lampstand, and an entire world of adventure where she meets Aslan. What does Edmund, when he goes into the wardrobe, see? He sees nothing but a wood panel in the back of the wardrobe. It's our vision, it's our eyes, it's, it's the sensitivity of what we see in the battle in front of us. And so the Lord gives Joshua the plan. Now this is ridiculous, okay? So here's the plan, Joshua. I want you to get up early in the morning and get the priest to grab the ark and then get seven priests and get them to have these big old huge trumpets, okay? I want them blowing on the trumpets as the ark goes forward, but I want you to put some other priests around them. Then I want half the army to go in front of the ark and I want the other half of the army to go in the back of the ark. Ah, oh, this is good. This sounds good. We're, we're going to take the city. And God says, so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you just to march around the outside of the city. Okay, yeah? And then go back to camp and go to bed. Really? Okay, well, tell us more. So the next day, I want you to get up, and I want you to take the ark, and I want these priests to get the, the trumpets, and then I want you to put half the army in front of the ark and half the army in the back, and I want you to go. I want you to march around the city. Okay? And then go back to camp and go to bed. Seriously? Okay, third day. I want you to do the same thing. Get up, march around the city, come back to camp, and go to bed. Now, this is the kind of strategy that drives doers crazy. Can you imagine some of those soldiers? Like, I am here, I got my equipment on, I'm ready for game time, and you're telling me again to walk around the city and go back to camp and go to bed. Yeah, because... Sometimes God's ways are truly weird. They're not our ways. They're not always how we would do things. The Apostle Paul said, this priceless treasure we hold, so to speak, in a common earthenware jar, is to show that the splendid power of it belongs to God and not us. We may have a plan, but it oftentimes is not God's strategy. So in verse 7, Joshua says, advance. It's the same word as he used when he said, get across the river. We're moving forward. God is always about progress. He's moving us forward. He's going someplace. And, and leaders get things moving. But there's one, one more, one-third move, I think that is important when we're in battle, when we hit a wall. And that is that we ought to turn conflict into an opportunity for grace. As followers of Jesus, on this side of the cross, we say, yeah, it's about grace. But you know, it's always been about grace from the very, very beginning. God has a plan, and his plan is to restore this world. 
where there's hurt and pain and brokenness and sin. It's God's design to restore that. Way back when God was talking to Abraham in chapter 15, he told him, he said, yes, but you won't inherit Canaan until the fourth generation. He said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will eventually come back here to the promised land. And then he said this, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. Somehow, the implication is that God had been patient with the people in Jericho, with all these nations. And it's hard for us to understand, but when somehow their sins had reached its full measure in God's patience, 400 years of giving them opportunities to turn, and they shut the gates tight, God said, enough, I'm sending Israel in. And judgment came. But just so that Israel didn't get a big head, he said to Moses three times. He said, after the Lord your God has driven all these people out before you, do not say to yourselves, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you, for you are a stiff-necked people. You'll spend 40 years in the wilderness because of your stubbornness. God is a gracious God, wanting to give mercy. He extended that to Jericho. He extended that to Israel. But he's able to turn conflict into grace. I want you to notice, we talked about Rahab back in chapter 2. And this is what she says while she's with the spies that had come in. And I want you to see if you can detect, in a sense, Rahab's salvation, her turn, her her conversion, if you will. She said in verse 8 of chapter 2, Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up onto the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. An opportunity for the nations to turn, to repent, But this is what Rahab says. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And now please swear to me that you'll save me. Scarlet ribbon tied out of her house on the edge of the wall. God is able to turn conflict into grace. Though the ban... The dedication that God placed on Jericho meant that the entire city was going to be destroyed. There was still an opportunity for mercy and grace because God wants to save. We think of Rahab as the prostitute. Rahab's not a prostitute. For whatever reasons that we don't know, Rahab ended up 
in this life. And so we think of her as Rahab the prostitute. That, that is not her identity. No, her identity was one that called out for help to the living God, and God offered her grace. You know who Rahab is? Rahab is the great, great, great something grandmother of Jesus. Yeah, there's mercy, there's grace. The bloodline of our holy Savior came from Rahab. She's she's not labeled by prostitute, but by the faithful daughter of God. And this anticipates sort of the international ethnic inclusivity in the church of Jesus. In fact, in heaven, the leaders cry out to Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're all going to be in heaven. With us. Rahab reminds us that God is ready to turn any conflict into an opportunity for grace. And that brings us all the way to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to Ephesians. Of course, God's about grace. Of course, we're going to be about grace because what does Paul say? Chapter 2, verse 8. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Grace is always a gift of God. Rahab was saved because of God's great mercy. And it's not by works so that you cannot boast. Because let's be honest. Aren't we actually stiff-necked people just like Israel? We're stubborn. We fight. But you've been created. You're God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is the thing that just blew the Apostle Paul's mind because he was a, 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 a Jew of all Jews. That God had somehow blown the doors open and welcomed the Gentiles into the people of God. He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Rahab. Actually, that's each one of us. And then this is how he concludes. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people. And get this. And also members of his family. That's such a beautiful picture that the church is a family and it's made up of all sorts of really weird people like us. And there's always the open arm welcome. Of course you can come in. Of course you're part of us. We have the privilege in this day and age, in the second decade of the river, to be those that announce to our community, you can be adopted into God's heavenly family. Rahab's not a prostitute. Rahab is my sister. We are We are brothers and sisters together in a family. And it's just made up of all sorts of people. So let me ask, what is your battle? What's facing you this next week? What's the wall that is standing up? 
And maybe a thought to think of is, what, what simple posture could I take to sort of put me in a place where I let God be God and I let him be the warrior? That's true that he said, once the wall goes down, every single soldier has got to go straight in. You know what that meant? That meant y'all have a job to do. You got to go into the city and fight like crazy. It was dangerous. The other question is, does God really want you to fight that battle? You know, maybe sometimes we're taking on battles that God says, no, that's not that important. Let that one go. Just, Just give up the impulse to respond on social media. Just let it go. So, I leave you with this. Brad, why don't you guys come on up. What, what would it look like for the River family to just, you know, in this community, be people that have open arms, that embrace the stranger, that, that just exude grace, that, that we take the opportunity to build bridges rather than walls between us and the people around us and and just be people that that wholly put our trust in Jesus, the warrior who fights on our behalf. Let's do that.